this is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Dr. Eleanor Dunmill, an expert in 19th century literary and publishing history. Welcome to episode 27, part two, Mary Church Terrell. Um, So the same content warnings for the last episode hold, um, including most particularly racism, lynching, police violence against black people, and the death of children. And um, the same note pertains as well. As with other episodes of this series, we are referring to the titles of works and names of groups using the original language that we would not be using today. Um, not only are they official names and titles on record, and so changing them is kind of, um, you know, inaccurate, not great, um, but also Church Terrell was very open about preferring the term colored, as Eleanor noted last time. She linked it to this sort of it's a way that she made overt the sort of racial violence against her ancestors and the kind of uh, conditions that led to her existence in the first place. Um, so it's important kind of linguistic activism on her behalf. Very intentional. So uh, before we dive into the second part, let's take a quick trip around the world in the second half of Mary Church Terrell's lifetime. On February 14, 1899, voting machines are approved by the U.S. Congress for use in federal elections. On October 16, 1901, U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt invites African-American leader Booker T. Washington to the White House. The American South reacts angrily to the visit and racial violence increases in the region. On February 11th of 1903, the Oxnard Strike of 1903 becomes the first time in U.S. history that a labor union is formed from members of different races. On January 23rd, 1907, Charles Curtis from Kansas becomes the first Native American United States Senator. On February 12th, 1909, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People is founded in New York City. On March 3, 1913, the women's suffrage procession takes place in Washington, D.C., led by Inez Milholland on horseback. On January 12, 1915, the United States House of Representatives rejects a proposal to give women the right to vote. On February 8th of the same year, the controversial film The Birth of a Nation, directed by D.W. Griffith, premieres in Los Angeles and will be the highest grossing film for around 25 years. And if anyone doesn't have context, that is about the KKK. Yeah. Um, If you want to read a really great novel from a Black author that kind of reimagines the emergence of this film in a speculative way, you should take a look at um, P. Jelly Clark's Ring Shout. It's really great. Uh, (laughs) To interrupt our flow here, sorry. Um necessary yeah 
On February 10, 1919, the Inter-Allied Women's Conference convenes to compile a list of women's issues to present to the delegates of the Paris Peace Conference. On May 30, 1922, in Washington, D.C., the Lincoln Memorial is dedicated. On March 21, 1928, Charles Lindbergh is presented with the Medal of Honor for his first transatlantic flight. On February 18, 1930, Arizona scientists reveal their newest discovery, a ninth planet they named Pluto, after the Greek god of the underworld. From September 18th of 1939 to September 19th of 1945, the Langley Lab begins recruiting African-American women as computers. So they're doing the math that will eventually take us to space. On January 5th, 1948, Warner Brothers shows the first color newsreel. And on July 29th, 1954, The Fellowship of the Ring, the first of three volumes in J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series, The Lord of the Rings, is published. Okay, so with that, let's dive in. When we left off last time... Mary Church Terrell, or Molly to her friends and family, was in Europe, and she was in Liverpool waiting to meet up with her mother and her brother. Right before her mother and brother set out for Europe, something unusual had happened. Um, Mom, Louisa, was in the habit of occasionally spending a dollar on a lottery ticket, never ever expecting to win. But when she did, um, she won $15,000, which was almost half a million in today's currency. Um, That was kind of life-changing money, you know. So Molly's dad is wealthy. Her mom, it's it's a a big thing for her mom to get this half a million suddenly. Um, Yeah, because like I said, when Molly and... Robert Jr. are children, it's Louisa supporting the family, but then yeah. later on, the kind of tables turn between her parents. Yeah. So she's, you know, c- comfortable, but like, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so it's with almost half a million by today's standards that Louisa and Robert Jr. head to Europe. And Molly very diplomatically writes that, quote, whatever mother wanted, she bought. <laughs> If she happened to have the money that minute to pay for it, she literally fulfilled the scriptures and obeyed to the letter the injunction not to lay up treasures for yourself on earth, end quote. Um, So this is her very kind of, yeah, um, very gracious way of saying her mom kind of went wild with that money, (laughs) understandably so, uh, despite Molly's repeated advice to maybe save a little of that cash uh louisa was determined to live it up on this trip she would hire cabs whenever she wanted she bought whatever she wanted when she saw it and she bought whatever she thought her kids might want or need as well they do a lot during their travels so i'm just gonna hit some high points um Soon after meeting up, they head to Paris, where they have this kind of harrowing and very modern experience. If you have ever taken a rideshare, something along these lines has been on your mind at some point. So a cabbie drove them off route and seemed to really doggedly double down when Molly questioned where he was taking them. Because she knew the route, and he just starts driving. Yeah. 
Molly has to basically say, my brother will attack you if you don't turn around. Um, and he eventually, the cabbie eventually gives in and takes him to the hotel. And she writes, quote, ever since then, I have been timid about hiring a cab in a strange city at night. So you allude to some scrapes. She has a number of the kinds of scrapes you would expect just traveling or being in a big city. Mm-hmm. So they stay in Paris for a while, I think, you know, because now we have this, you know, half a million dollars, roughly $15,000 in the time uh, to be able to afford Paris and people to go with you everywhere. And so suddenly it's like this enjoyable place again. Yeah. And it's 1889 and the Paris Exposition is coming up. So we're not going to kind of delve into that. We'll link to a resource about the Paris Exposition. Um, But it's this time of big expositions out in the world anyway you know kind of like the great ex exhibition in england you know like 40 plus years earlier um the chicago world's fairs around the corner this is really exciting kind of worldwide stage um that lots of cool things happen at anyway so they get to experience that before Louisa and Robert Jr. have to rush back to the States so that Robert Jr. can start college. Molly, meanwhile, goes back to Germany to continue her studies. So this is kind of just this family vacation pleasure interlude. But now she's back to the serious work of being in Europe and learning everything that she can soak up while she's there. Mm -hmm. Um, All this time, while she's been traveling, she's done her best really to speak the native language and not English. So in Germany, she puts herself in situations where she's not going to be tempted to fall back on English um, and to mix with, quote, good circles of Americans and Germans alike. So these are, you know, higher class people who are well connected and who can um, help her kind of expand her horizons. Um, But also, you know, people on whose level she actually is as a higher class person herself. Yeah. I don't want to dive into the details of this, but while she was traveling, she did deal with racism from fellow Americans primarily, um, who would sometimes, for example, tell her landladies that back in America, she would not be considered acceptable company. Yeah. Um, It seems like for the most part, the landladies were staunchly on her side in these affairs, but they were highly embarrassing for her. And, you know, I mean, on top of just kind of that racial ugliness. Mm. But she kind of started to see this weird double standard, right? These landladies and her friends would stick up for her, but would be horribly anti-Semitic. And so she did a lot of this kind of (laughs) education of these people like you understand friends that the stereotypes and prejudices about me aren't true how come you can't apply this to your jewish fellow citizens um and it's hard to say really how much headway she made with that it seems like it was kind of variable um yeah that kind of came up the first time she was in um germany the same thing comes up with her um that's a story of she can't I'm trying to remember. She is going between two lodgings to try and figure out which one she wants. And then the second one, she goes to tell them, I found another one. I don't want to stay here. 
and they're kind of horrible to her. And then as she's leaving, someone someone brings up and says, it's a white American who says, like, I wouldn't, if you had bit this woman, I will leave. I don't want to be. Yeah. And then one of her other lodgings in the first time she stays in Germany, she's staying with a Jewish family. Yeah. So there's this real kind of double standard, this real tension following her everywhere she goes that, yeah, that we will circle back to again, unfortunately. Eventually, Molly has um, done what she means to do in Germany and decides to move on to Italy. But before she can leave, she receives another of the four marriage proposals. Um, and this one is from a young baron that she's befriended, whose name is Herr von D. That's all we get. Um, so, you know, during her time there, they've become friends. They attend events together. Um, they enjoy one another's company. Unbeknownst to her, he writes to her father asking for permission to propose. And she's kind of outraged by this, even though it does seem like she might have been fond of him um, and might have been inclined to accept if the world wasn't what it was. Um, so she's outraged because she knows her father is very averse to interracial marriages, um, kind of understandably so, given his background, right? Yeah. Um, but also because it jeopardizes her own priority, which is to continue traveling and to continue building her education because she's afraid her father is going to blame her for the proposal and order her back home. Yeah, the this came up in the I talk, I I can't speak. I watched a talk of Alison Parker talking about this um for the National Archives and mm. her take on this was everything you've just said, but also Yes, the American tradition at the time very much, or the way that Molly articulated it, was you ask the father's permission, but you ask the woman before you ask the father's permission. So it's like removing her agency as well. She's not averse to him asking her dad, but she wants him to ask her first. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's a very old world sort of women as property way of doing things, even if he doesn't intend it that way. So her father, of course, flatly objected to the marriage, um, but thankfully allowed Molly to continue traveling. And she's writing this memoir at the outset of World War II, and she notes that if she had married him, she and any children she would have had would have been in danger. So she kind of like couch, she kind of obscures the regret that I think she does feel at not marrying this man. Um with the fact that it would have led to a trying life for her down the road. Yeah. So she heads to Italy, Florence specifically, um, the site of so many of our episodes recently. (laughs) And um, yeah, I just have kind of a few highlights from her time there to wrap up this European travel section. So she talks about various other traveling close calls and sightseeing. But amid all of that, she mentions finding a book in a shop and um, participating in some literary tourism that I was really excited to hear about, and I think all of you will be too. So she writes, quote, I found an edition deluxe of George Eliot's Romola in two volumes, bound in white and trimmed in red. 
Unmounted photographs of the places and pictures mentioned by the author were pasted in the book opposite the pages in which they were described. It was a delightful experience to take this book, visit the places, and look at the pictures to which George Eliot referred. End quote. I love that. Yeah, it's also not the only time George Eliot comes up in this part of our Mary Church Terrell episodes. So, um, I don't know. I'm delighted by this. Anyway. After a short time in Florence, Molly received a telegram from her father noting that he and his current wife and children would be joining her um, in the coming days. So once they arrive, the family travels to Heidelberg and tours further around Europe, kind of more pleasure vacation style again. And during this time, Molly kind of reflects on the trickiness of making friends mm-hmm. and trying to probe their level of race prejudice and also because she didn't want to just pass. Yeah. So, yeah, she she's kind of really reflects on how many times she has to kind of casually say, hey, I'm a black woman, um, and then hold her breath and brace for the response. But she just sort of explains it as, like, she, on the one hand, she doesn't want them to um, – like not know the potential social risks of associating with her. But on the other hand, she just also doesn't want to hang out with racists. And on yet another hand, she's proud of who she is and wants everyone to know and not be kind of confused about it because, for example, she's sometimes mistaken as a a Spaniard. Mm -hmm. So even though she um, encounters racism at various stages of her European travels, she finds a lot more open-mindedness than she feels she ever could at home. And she's dreading the return to the U.S., even though she knows it's inevitable, yeah. right? She has to go back home someday. So she kind of reflects on this by balancing it with this couple of paragraphs about how patriotic she is. Like this really emotional thing about anytime she passes a U.S. consulate, she is moved to tears and pride swells and that kind of thing. Um, So she's kind of trying to like be critical of her homeland with not being too critical. But at the same time, she then kind of says it's a shame that the values we uphold as a country don't extend to me, basically. That's such a good way of putting it as well. Yeah. Her European tour has come to an end, and after a rocky reinitiation to life in the United States, Molly heads back to work teaching Latin and German in D.C. And there, Mr. Terrell, Berto Terrell, is still the head of the Latin department, and he begins to officially court her. The two were very professional at work, um, but students would occasionally catch sight of them out and about, and they began to tease the two of them, mostly Mr. Terrell, um, by punning on Molly's surname. So (laughs) this is so adorable. They'd leave notes on the blackboard like, quote, Mr. Terrell is certainly getting good. He used to go to dances, but now he goes to church, with a capital C. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, with the um, before she left for Europe, the the boys seemed to have a similar fun time mm. making fun of them because I think it was obvious even then that Berto was into Molly, and they'd just be like, "Yeah, he'll don't ask Mister Terrell what the answer is because he'll just ask Miss Church." Yeah, it's so cute. 
When Mr. Terrell eventually proposed, Molly accepted. Um, and then, because the universe has such impeccable timing, she got the job offer of a lifetime. Oberlin College reached out and offered her the role of registrar, which doesn't sound exceptionally glamorous, but would have actually meant that she was a faculty member. Um, so she would have been possibly the first black woman faculty member at a white college. Mm-hmm. And that was appealing as heck, to put it mildly. But it would mean that she had to put off her marriage for a year. And she notes that she would have felt obligated to resign after a year anyway uh, when she did get married, um, which is kind of a really typical thing that women do is they quit working when they get married in this time period. So she felt it wouldn't be fair to sort of accept the offer on what she called false pretenses. So she turned Oberlin down. And I think this is one of the regrets of her lifetime, one of the major regrets. Yeah. Yeah. She reminisces about what she could have accomplished in such a position and actually goes so far as to apologize to her reader for a potential failure to advance racial equity. So I think this one haunted her. Yeah, we can Um, see that. But it was a choice that most women of her time had to make and there was immense social pressure to make it the way that molly did but just because she chose marriage didn't mean that she'd agreed to a life of quiet domesticity and also it's so heartbreaking that she a feels like she has to make this choice mm-hmm. but b feels that she has to apologize for it yeah i can see her regretting it um but she made it on the information that she had at the time and it, there's this kind of feeling that people who are exceptional or are activists or any are supposed to put aside their personal wants and desires yeah and like kind of self-abnegate in that way it's kind of heartbreaking that she's apologizing for that yeah definitely i'm kind of like i want to like birdo but at the same time like why didn't he just make her take the job and i don't know i guess he can't change social conventions about her keeping it after she's married so Mm -hmm. Everyone loses. Yeah. Yeah. So her married life. um, The chapters in which she describes her married life are weird. Um, (laughs) And not like in regard to actually being a married person, but more in that like she talks about her marriage mixed up with racial violence and racially motivated violence and um personal loss and and in ways that i mean obviously they were intermingled and she makes this really Mm -hmm. strategic choice as a writer not to sort of neatly pull out her marriage and talk about it as this happy shiny time on its own so i think i think the weirdness is on purpose and i think it's supposed to tell us something really important right um so it's 1891 and Molly and Berto are married in Memphis, but travel to New York afterwards to stay with Louisa, Molly's mom, for the honeymoon. So Molly recounts the uh, the trouso, what her kind of uh, outfit is and everything like that, and lists a bunch of gifts, um, kind of as a way to name drop the gift givers, which in- who included Thomas Jefferson's grandson, for example. 
Um, but it's this really kind of rapid fire recounting of the wedding. Then she transitions into talking about something that shaped her life after marriage dramatically. And that is the murder of one of her best friends, Thomas or Tom Moss. And um, this is a really hard time to be recording this because the U.S. continues to be a cesspit of police violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you need to walk away from this episode now, I want to give you that option. So this is a really familiar story for us these days. Um, Tom was a letter carrier with a dream. He wanted to open a store. And he saved and saved until his dream became a reality. And he started a business in Memphis with, it sounds like, a couple of co-owners. So when local Black folks were given the choice to shop at a Black-owned business, of course, they took it. But this enraged the white business owner across the street, who rounded up a few friends and started a riot. The police put Moss and his two business partners in jail, and the next day, a mob swarmed the jail, abducted the men, and shot them. Um, Molly called this a lynching, and rightly so, even though um, we tend to think of lynchings as hangings these days because... The motive and the results were the same. She questioned her faith afterward, and her words tragically resonate so much still today. Mm -hmm. Quote. I think that's... Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) No, I was... I don't want to interrupt you right while you're doing the quote, but I think like that's the thing that's heartbreaking about this is it both harkens back to her father's experience, but it's just still happening in 2021. Like, it's 140, 130 years later. Like, how can we have this history and still be quibbling over whether or not we need to abolish the police force? Like, it's mind-blowing to me that this is even a hard decision to make. And I think when I, like, I talked to you about how I was picking out things for the around the world and I was trying not to be here is trauma enacted on the black community. Mm -hmm. You want to show that it's been happening for so long and it just keeps, something will happen. And then for like a month or a year, people will say they're going to change and then nothing changes. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want to include this because it's like, we don't need to keep telling, like circulating these stories of black trauma and pain. And I would have not brought this out except that it is this sort of catalyst for Molly. And it's really kind of important to understanding what drove her specifically. Yeah, yeah, so she writes, quote, I could not see how a crime like that could be perpetuated in a Christian country while thousands of Christians sinfully winked at it by making no protest loud enough to be heard, nor making any earnest effort to redress this terrible wrong. End quote. So she ultimately regained her faith in the church, um, but still kind of resolutely admonished the institution in the hope that it would become better. Mm. And... Between her marriage and the murder of Tom Moss, um, Molly also lost several children um, shortly after they were born. 
She writes about the grief and depression that followed and how it became mixed up with this larger racial grief and anger. Um, and she thought at one point that it might be a blessing not to raise a baby in this racist country. Um, and she also notes that a white woman basically said that right to her face right after one of her children died. And somehow, just like this speaks to what a strong person Molly was, that she <laughs> took this as like a gracious comment and did not <laughs> strangle the woman on the spot. Or she writes about it as a, as, as a gracious comment. I don't know if in the moment she experienced it as as um politely as she writes about it right but yeah i think that um, maybe it's another case of her being very gracious after the fact and very kind of diplomatic but yeah it's one it's one thing to say about yourself you don't say that to people yeah. whose experience you can never understand yeah that's just so i want to like time travel i have like a short list of you know like it's the stereotypical thing of what do you do if you go back in time like i feel like most people have the big ones that always get touted covered so i have this like short list of people yeah. that i just want to go back in time and be like you're horrible <laughs> i don't know um most white people in this episode uh-huh <sighs> yeah so the sort of you know the trials come and go um that's kind of the most we dwell on them in this episode I think she loses three or four children. She's kind of understandably ambiguous about that. Um, I think that's that's part of why I wanted to quote that those first few paragraphs that she writes. She says, "Yeah, I'm talking about my struggles. I'm not talking about them to seek sympathy. Yeah, but I need you to understand where I'm coming from." Mm -hmm. Yeah, we need to remember the title of this memoir. Mm -hmm. Because she means it very intentionally as a political document. Um, so this is where we start to hear more about um, Molly's life as a writer and a lecturer and a public figure. In 1893, like so many literary luminaries, Molly finds herself at the Chicago World's Fair. And there, she hangs out with Frederick Douglass, who was there organizing the Haiti exhibit, or the Haiti Pavilion, um, which it is also called, and one of the first recognized and celebrated Black poets in the United States, Paul Lawrence Dunbar. Um, Paul Dunbar would later live next door to Molly, and the two became very, very close friends. Um, and I could probably spend a whole episode apiece on... The World's Fair, Frederick Douglass, and Paul Dunbar. Instead of doing that, I am going to point you to some podcasts and other resources that you can dive into to explore these topics more. These topics and people, I should say. Um, Molly's married life wasn't all big events and friendships with icons. Um, she was a terrible cook at first. Um, <laughs> and... So she like sprinkles in these tiny, tiny little details about mm -hmm. her kind of day-to-day -day quiet life. Um, and also kind of always pairs those with struggles about simply living in the United States. So there's an extended section 
about house buying that she talks about, which I think is interesting um, and kind of also familiar in the U.S. today. So after renting for the first two years of their marriage, the Terrells decide it's time to buy a house. Um, But that's easier said than done because all of the nice houses with modern amenities are in white neighborhoods. And even though the Terrells have money, as soon as the sellers find out that they are black, they refuse to sell. Even when there are other black families who already own in the neighborhood. Um, It's this pattern that is clearly um, devastating and infuriating to her. Um, And, you know, this kind of behavior quickly formalized into a practice known as redlining, which still affects black home owners and home seekers. And so I've linked to a Code Switch episode about it in the show notes. Um, It's worth reading about in the U.S. um, especially. So anyway, they do find a house, finally. It's not Molly's dream house, but it's doable, and in fact, they live there for 15 years with Molly's mother. When her mother passes away, she decides, Molly decides that she needs a change. She needs to move. So she starts another home search. Um, and she has the money to buy a dream house at this point if she can find it. Mm-hmm. But the same problems crop up, and she writes this really kind of telling quote that kind of just made me want to like cheer from the sidelines for her. She writes, quote, I felt then, as I feel now, that people who are discriminated against solely on account of race, color, or creed are justified in resorting to any subterfuge, using any disguise, or playing any trick, provided they do not actually break the law, if it will enable them to secure the advantages and obtain the rights to which they are entitled by outwitting their prejudice-ridden foes. Yeah. End quote. Heck yeah. I just want a slow clap. I don't know. She's right and she should say it. Yeah. So from this time in her life on, Mary Church Terrell basically does enough for three lifetimes, um, (laughs) at least. And in the interest of time, I'm going to hit the highlights before we take some time to explore her reflections on her life as a writer. So let's cue that around the world music yet again. So, from 1895 to 1901, she served on the District of Columbia School Board. Uh, In 1896, she organized and became the first president of the National Association of Colored Women. From 1898 to 1920, she was active in the women's suffrage movement. In 1904, she addressed the International Congress of Women in Berlin, Germany. From 1906 to 1911, she was reappointed to and served on the District of Columbia School Board. In 1909, she was a charter, a founding member uh, of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, which you probably know as the NAACP. In 1918 and 1919, she served in the War Camp Community Service. In 1919, she addressed the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom in Zurich, Switzerland. In 1920, she was appointed supervisor for the Committee for Eastern District Work among Colored Women, the Republican National Committee. From 1929 to 1930, she campaigned for Ruth Hannah McCormick, Republican candidate of U.S. Senate from Illinois. 
1932, she served as an advisor to the Republican National Committee um, for Herbert Hoover's presidential campaign. In 1937, she represented American Black women at the World Fellowship of Faiths in London, England. In 1940, she published her autobiography, A Colored Woman in a White World. In 1949, she was admitted to membership in the American Association of University Women after being rejected by the Washington, D.C. branch. What's up, Washington, D.C.? She was elected the chairman uh, of the Coordinating Committee for the Enforcement of D.C. Anti-Discrimination Laws. And she passed away in 1954 on July 24th in Annapolis, uh, Maryland. So I list it all out in that way, not to undercut what she's doing, but because there is so very much. And I wanted to at at least acknowledge it all so that you could, you listeners could have a chance to pinpoint what you want to learn more about. And I hope that in our resources, there will be kind of sufficient directions for you to go to learn more, um, including another two-part podcast mm-hmm. <laughs> series on her life by the History Chicks, which we have not listened to because we kind of wanted to wait and see. Yeah, we wanted to kind of give our own slant on it and not... I think both of us worried that if we listened to the History Chicks, we would ac- almost accidentally just repeat things that they had said because I know that's yeah a danger. Yeah. So hopefully, I mean, you get kind of two different sets of viewpoints, um, but I also have found, you know, a bunch of different resources and I know you have too, Eleanor, to point people to. Um, we are fantastically lucky that we have so many records of her life um, to keep exploring. Yeah, and I think the the book that I kind of looked at, Alison Parker's, um, I think it's Unceasing Militant, is a really good, thorough investigation of Mary Church Terrell's life. And the talk that she did with the U.S. National Archives, which both of those are linked in the show notes, um, were really interesting and illuminating. And it's just so nice when you when you see someone talking about their research subject and you can see how passionate they are. Yeah. Yeah. That was amazing. So let's talk about Mary Church Terrell's writing. Like many authors, it seems that Terrell had an experience as a young person that opened her eyes to the glories of authordom. She solved a puzzle in St. Nicholas Children's Magazine and saw her name printed in the magazine as one of the winners when she was 9 or 10 years old. So this kind of experience of seeing her name in print kind of gave her a goal that she never knew she had before, which is to make that happen again. Um... She didn't really start writing seriously until college, or preparatory school anyway, where she was on the board of the Oberlin Review as a representative of the Aeolian Society. Um, She wrote reviews which she reports were well-received. Her memories about writing are quite fascinating. Uh, She notes that, quote, If ever a human being wrote with fear and trembling, it was surely I. I penned my thoughts painfully in longhand, of course, for the typewriter had not yet appeared. I interlined, changed and rechanged, crossed out, reinserted, and made composition a difficult task for myself indeed. No human being in the wide world but me could have deciphered my manuscript when I finished writing an essay, and it was not an easy job for me. (laughs) 
No matter how much pains I took with an essay or an oration, I was never satisfied with it. Writing a composition, and this is in quotes, was a grueling, painful, heartbreaking task for me. So writing doesn't come easy, but it's something that she clearly finds rewarding because she keeps at it uh, despite the heartbreak. And she was asked eventually by editor after editor to write for their papers. The first of these was the Washington, D.C. New Era, and then The Colored American, in which she seems to have launched her pseudonym, Euphemia Kirk. Then she started writing for a New York paper called The New York Age, for which she was paid $4 a week, and which seems to have been the first time she was ever paid for her writing at all. Sounds well right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I think she started out more like $1 a piece, and then as she continued writing, she built up to $4 a week or something like that. Her work appeared in a lot of places, and I'm just going to list a few. The AME Church Review, which we mentioned in the Jackson Coppin episode. Um, the Southern Workman, which was published in Hampton, Virginia. The Indianapolis Freeman and the Afro-American of Baltimore, the Washington Tribune, uh, the Chicago Defender, the Norfolk Journal and Guide, another Virginia publication, um, the Howard Magazine, which was published by her brother, Thomas Ayers Church. Oh, so her um, brother's Thomas. She has, a, she has a lot of siblings. Oh, yes. No, he Thomas is one of her siblings from... No, Thomas has to be her full brother because Louisa is Louisa as church. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess we have to use a note at the top. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> That's fine. Um, there are still too many Roberts. Yeah. Sorry, I threw you off. Um, and she also wrote for one called The Voice, um, the, Vo the Washington Evening Star, Washington Post, and Sunday Boston Globe. She notes that she especially loved writing for The Voice, and that one of her favorite pieces published there was called Christmas in the White House, in which she got to report on what Christmas looked like with Theodore Roosevelt and his family, and took particular pleasure reporting the gifts received by two black children whose father was the steward at the White House at the time. Apparently, The Washington Post is the only newspaper that ever published one of her short stories. She jokingly mentions, quote, when reading the life of some well-known novelist, I have often been awed to learn that the very first story he or she ever wrote was accepted. Well, I can say the same thing, although I cannot lay claim to being a well-known or any other kind of novelist. The very first story I ever wrote, which was entitled Venus and the Night Doctors, was accepted by the Washington Post. But the comparison between the writers whose first story was accepted and me ends right there. For those whose names shine bright in the galaxy of letters kept on producing stories which were accepted, while my very first was also my last, which managed to burst into print. All of my stories were based on the race problem. Several reputable critics to whom I submitted them averred they passed muster quite nicely, but the editors of the magazines to whom they were sent thought otherwise and returned them post-haste. I soon discovered 
that there are few things more difficult than inducing an editor of the average magazine to publish an article on the race problem unless it sets forth the point of view which is popularly and generally accepted. Nobody wants to know a colored woman's opinion about her own status or that of her group. When she dares express it, no matter how mild or tactful it may be, it is called propaganda or is labeled controversial. Those two words have come to have a very ominous sound to me. I cannot escape them. They confront me everywhere I go. So, I mean, this is kind of the through line of her writing career. Like all writers, she had her share of rejections. And at first, she assumed that it was because she wasn't great at fiction yet. Mm -hmm. um, or at writing, she was like, okay, I'm going to get better at this, and then I'll get published more. Uh, until one day, she read an article in the North American Review about lynching, which was so egregiously wrong that she was compelled to write to the editor about it. She was invited to write a rebuttal, and that was published with basically no edits um, in 1904. And heartbreakingly, she says it was one of the easiest things she ever wrote because she'd been keeping a scrapbook of articles about lynchings, um, which allowed her to document the fact that innocent people were in fact being murdered on a regular basis. So after, after that kind of turning point in her career where she realizes, oh, I'm actually good at this, maybe it's racism. Um, she has several other major successes in publishing uh, nonfiction and then notes, quote, I realized then more clearly than ever before that the reason my manuscripts had been rejected by American magazines was because the editors objected to having certain conditions which obtain in the United States broadcast to the world. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that the only kind of article which found favor with the editors was one that emphasized the colored Americans' vices and defects or held him up to ridicule and scorn, stories which represented him as being a crapshooter, a murderer, a bum, or a buffoon, were considered fine examples of literary art and appeared in reputable magazines from time to time. But those which related his struggles to accomplish something worthwhile against fearful odds were labeled controversial and never saw the light of day. Those who wrote them were accused of trying to spread propaganda throughout the country, which was a case of literary treason on the high seas. So I share this because it's still, it's still something we talk about in publishing. What, what sells? from black writers and, and um i remember last year in science fiction writing circles in particular there was this real kind of thing of like um amid all that was going on last summer um with the murder of george floyd and on um this kind of move to say okay but we need to give space for stories about black joy and black success, which is exactly what she's staying here. Yeah. Right. Like, but nobody wanted to buy those from her. And like, no one wants to buy the, the cuttings that she's got of people being like innocent people being lynched. We still have that today where people want to pretend that George Floyd and Dante Wright had done something wrong to justify their yeah. being murdered. Yeah. There always has to be this emphasis on what these people have presumably done wrong to yeah, to warrant that. 
Yeah, she touches on this really important thing that we keep seeing play out every single day, basically, which is that it's all a matter of reputation, the country's reputation versus the the reputation of the victims. And time and time again, every news outlet, every institution seems to be like protecting the country and the police's reputation over like a child, right? Yeah, and you can see where it comes from when she's talking about her, when she says she feels that surge of patriotism and then she feels uncomfortable with that because what is, yeah, sure there are things to be proud of, of being like either American or British, I'm struggling to think of any right now, but I'm sure there are some. Yeah, <laughs> but they get, same. They get so overshadowed and if you can't admit the mistakes of your country or take it personally then yeah it's meaningless but anyway it seems like she kind of got the message and started selling her writing more abroad than she did in the u.s because she knew she just couldn't get it sold in the u.s even though she was writing important things um sometimes editors would buy her articles and then like buy them to keep them out of the public. So buy them and sit on them. So for example, the Chicago Tribune bought an article titled How, Why, When, and Where Black Becomes White, and then didn't publish it for a year. Um, Thankfully, back then, multiple submissions weren't really super regulated. So she did submit the article somewhere else and get paid for it and get it published, I think, in a DC magazine. But um, it was this weird, this like intentional... um, what is it called? Trunking? Yeah, trunking of her work. It's catch and kill, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So despite this over-racism that she's facing in the publishing industry, she is making friends among major writers and editors of the day, um, including this list may or may not ring bells for you because they are major of their day, but they are lesser known now for the most part. So Mrs. Kruger... Mary Roberts Reinhardt, Ella Wheeler Wilcox, uh, who's a poet that I really enjoy her work, uh, William T. Stead, and Robert G. Ingersoll. Uh, and I think H.G. Wells at some point. Yeah, she it. was friends with H.G. Wells, which is a kind of odd friendship. but Right. <laughs> so she's a recognized journalist and a budding fiction writer uh, with writer friends hanging out Uh, One day at a party with those friends, she decides to ask this momentous question. Would a modern version of Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin ever be published today? And by today, I mean back in the moment that she's in, right? Um, And the editors get deep into the weeds discussing this, the editors and the writers who are present, before they ultimately decide that no, Actually, no publication they can think of would print such a novel in the current period. And this is like she expected that answer, but it kind of takes all of her wind out of her sails in terms of fiction writing. So she notes, quote, that confirmed my own views on the subject and sounded my literary death knell. So even though she's later approached by an editor, to write a novel that tackles, quote, the race problem head on. She notes, 
quote, I knew full well that the kind of story I would be able to write would not appeal to the average editor of an American magazine. I was sure it would be interpreted as propaganda of the deepest dye and would be voted controversial and inartistic to the nth degree. Right there, I gave up my literary ghost. But that didn't mean she gave up the dream without a regret. So she notes, quote, It has been a bitter disappointment to me that I did not succeed as a story writer. I have thought for years that the race problem could be solved more swiftly and more surely through the instrumentality of the short story or novel than in any other way. In this position, I was more strongly confirmed than ever when I learned that at least one other person agreed with me. But I had no faith in my ability to write such a story although my very soul yearned to do it, and I could not generate courage enough to attempt it. But even if I had possessed both the ability and the courage, I should have had to surmount many obstacles to find the time, the opportunity for concentration, and the peace of mind necessary to write such a book. I had to discharge my duty to my family, to the public schools in my capacity as a member of the Board of Education, and not infrequently, I filled lecture engagements. So she has all of these kind of very obvious reasons she doesn't continue to pursue fiction writing, but then we get back to some domestic ones as well, um, and personal ones, which is that she has a hectic schedule and personal life and she doesn't have a lot of time for the deep focus that she thinks that she knows from her own writing process writing a novel would require Um, and she talks about things like being interrupted by the doorbell every time she starts to sit down to write um, or getting notes from parents who think that her role on the school board means that she can um, smooth over bad grades or bad behavior those kinds of things Um, And in addition to these interruptions, she kind of lists out everything that she's doing, from lecturing to her day jobs to her duties as a mother and wife. Her nonfiction writing career was already taking place in free time, and there was no time left for fiction, really. But I think this reflection that she has about fiction writing that I'm going to kind of close with brings us full circle to the quote that Eleanor opened with. So she writes, Throughout my life, no matter what I was doing, I kept dreaming of the day I would have the leisure and the mental peace to write some of the things I longed to say. But that day never came. In every diary that I have kept, the yearning to express my thoughts on the printed page and the poignant regret that I could not do so run like a jeremiad from the first day of the year to the last. I am always getting ready to write something, I lament in one place, but I am never prepared to begin. I am more like George Eliot's Kasabin than anybody, either in fiction or out of it, with whom I can be compared. <laughs> so yeah, the, the Eliot reference. She's such an Eliot fan. I, I love it. <laughs> so unfair to herself. Yeah. She, she notes, if I had lived in a literary atmosphere, or if my time had not been so completely occupied with public work of many varieties, I might have gratified my desire to tell the world a few things I wanted it to know. I do not regret the time and energy consumed in serving others. I cannot help wondering, however, whether I might not have succeeded as a short story writer or a novelist or an essayist if the conditions under which I lived had been more conducive to the kind of literary work I so longed to do. 
So yeah, like she actually accomplished a heck ton of things, unlike Kasabin. And also she has, it's because she's doing these other things that she can't write rather than um, yeah, whatever Kasabin's problem is, which I'm not. General ennui. <laughs> general personality issues. Yeah. Um, and the last bit really, I don't know, made me think of a, an Elliot quote that I think of quite often, which is, and this is a paraphrase, but it's along the lines of what is life for if not making it easier for others? So I think that by doing what she's doing, she's honouring Elliot and that quote more than if she was less of a Casabon. Yeah. She's much more Dorothea if we're like keeping with Middlemarch, right? Like, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think I'll close with this other kind of similar twin reflection that she has about her life in general. I cannot help wondering what I might have become and might have done if I had lived in a country which had not circumscribed and handicapped me on account of my race, but had allowed me to reach any heights I was able to attain. Thanks for listening. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com slash support us to donate. All of the music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. 